We're, we're getting apocalyptic in the evenings, aren't we? Reverend Pearson working through Revelation, and then here we are with this passage, this man of sin section, the famous Antichrist passage. And two weeks ago when I started preparation on this, I thought this may be a very, very brief sermon. We're thankful for the reading. I don't... I'm, I am becoming acutely aware why far more people preach on First Thessalonians than Second. This book houses some of the hardest passages in the New Testament. Chapter 1, comforted the Thessalonians with knowledge that those who afflict them will suffer for eternity. And then every writer that I read called this passage about the man of lawlessness the most difficult in Paul's letters. So I can see why people might be tempted to skip this book. Countless speculations have been made, just to get right to it, about this man of lawlessness. He has fueled end-of-the-world novels. And every, I, I think this is fascinating, every single U.S. president, with the exception of Gerald Ford, has been identified as this apocalyptic figure. We're, we're naturally curious about the identity of God's foe. Here, which is why, seriously, verse 5 is perhaps the most infuriating verse in the Bible. Do you not remember when I was still with you, I told you these things? And that means that all the questions that we really want answers for them are things that the original readers already knew, and so Paul didn't spell out the answers explicitly again. And that might lead us simply to take St. Augustine's view on this passage when he wrote, I frankly confess I don't know what he means. But there are useful things in this text. And if we focus on the big picture issue, we should be encouraged. And it is a profitable text. So the main point is we should have hope because we still look forward to Christ's victorious coming. We should have hope because we still look forward to Christ's victorious coming. And we'll think about this in six questions. So the first one, got a little curveball there for you. So the first one, I, if I knew a better way to do this, I would do it that way. This is the, the clearest way I know how to work through this. So first question, why did Paul write this passage? Why did Paul write this passage? So he wrote this section with the pastoral motives to encourage the new Thess- Thessalonian Christians. The series as a whole is titled Words of Hope because Paul wrote these letters to oppressed Christians to help them persevere and grow in faith. So read with me verses 1 to 3. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him... We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. So, so let's focus in on, on this phrase here that we ask, or better, in this instance, we implore 
you brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. Paul, Paul heard there was a problem disturbing these new Christians, and he wrote to settle their concerns. He wanted them not to be deceived, but to be comforted by the truth. And so seemingly, there was a misunderstanding of what Paul previously wrote in First Thessalonians about Christ's second coming. Perhaps you remember in from First Thessalonians 4.13 to 5.11 that these same readers had been worried that their friends who died would not participate in the last day resurrection. Paul reaffirmed there that Christ would come, that He would come suddenly, and that all Christians, dead or, or alive at that time, would be raised. So possibly, that notion that Christ's coming would be sudden, unexpected, triggered misunderstanding. Because in Second Thessalonians, it, it appears some readers thought Christ already came. Paul, again, wrote to comfort Christians needing clarity. And that raises our second question. What is the point? What's the point? Paul's affirmation gives us insight into the problem that was vexing the Thessalonians. So verse 1, he didn't want them to be deceived concerning the coming of our Lord and our being gathered together to him. So, so the problem was about Christ's return and that resurrection when we will be gathered to him described in 1 Thessalonians 4. But then further, in, in verse 3, we can think there that for that day, namely the, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So the rest of this passage explains that point, that Christ's return is still future. And apparently, some took Paul's earlier argument that Christ's return will come suddenly to entail Christ already returned. So Paul described things here that had not yet happened, but must happen before Christ comes back to assure them that Christ had not returned and that they had not missed His appearing or the resurrection. In some... The point is that Christ's return was future. But then that presses us to our third question. When do these events happen? When do these events happen? And now we get to where it starts to get juicy and exciting. Verse 3 again states two things that have to happen before Christ's return. For that day will not come... Unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So our, our focus now is when these things happen. And first we need to think about how commentators are divided about whether this rebellion is a political or a religious rebellion. The, the Greek word here, apostasia, 
is where we get our English word apostasy, which, which means abandoning the faith. And, and the rest of this passage describes a rejection of God, which, which tells us that this is a religious rebellion. And that means this is likely not a rebellion that happened in the Roman Empire, but it's some sort of apostasy within the faith community, the church. More importantly, though, this man of lawlessness has to be revealed. And although his identity, we'll think about later, is difficult, this text says when he will be revealed. And whoever he is, it is his revelation that must occur before Christ returns. So so if you jump down to verse 8 and read there, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. I mean, I think it's reasonable. Everybody agrees the lawless one is the man of lawlessness. And we will later see that this revelation here happens after the events of that are described in verses 6 and 7. But in verse 8, the lawless one is revealed just in time to be killed by Jesus at his return. So whoever he is, whether he's around now or if he was around in 50 AD, his revelation, the, the key thing, finding out who he is, happens only just prior to Christ's return. His identity will be revealed fully just in time for Jesus Christ to destroy him with his word. And I mean, this comes right from the, the grammar of verse 8. Christ destroying the lawless one is, is backed strikingly against the lawless one's revelation. That, and so these seem to be simultaneous events. We can read it as if, Paul said, the lawless one will be made known and even at that time. Jesus Christ will kill him and bring him to nothing. And now, here's the obvious thing for us. This event when Jesus appears and kills this preeminent enemy hasn't happened. Which means these events, even from our perspective, are still in the future. But this verse is worth more reflection as it is perhaps the greatest reason for us to have hope in this passage. The, the most exciting stories, I mean, if you're reading a book, if you're going to the movies, the most exciting stories tell about the hero snatching victory despite certain failure. Good storytelling includes unexpected triumph. And in that light, this verse is really poor storytelling. Because it is a blunt reality that Jesus will instantly defeat the lawless one with his words. This is a, a shutout. This is a knockout in the first punch. As Ligon Duncan put it, this is Godzilla versus Bambi. And that's exciting. Jesus is going to demolish his enemy. 
he will bring him to nothing. This is the final culmination of that Genesis 3.15 promise that Jesus will crush the serpent's head. Even if the cross bruised his heel, this last victory is not a difficult effort for him. He does it by speaking. Jesus crushes his head like squishing a grape directly after his sudden appearing to defeat the lawless one at his revelation. Which will come like a thief in the night and Jesus will give glorified bodies to all Christians whether living or dead. And then we join him in his glorious eternal kingdom. And so, so in sum, our question, all these events will occur at the end of history. In this passage, just milliseconds before those events described in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 5, 11. Now, though, we need to think a bit more about the specific details of this passage. So our fourth question, who is the man of lawlessness? Who is the man of lawlessness? And, of course... This is the big question, isn't it? We we all wish to know the exact identity of this mysterious figure. We're going to take our first departure from verses 3 and 4. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day of the, of the Lord will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So in verse 3, the title, Man of Lawlessness, describes what kind of person this figure will be, his character, and the son of destruction Describes his destiny, destiny that we, we already considered from verse 8. That Jesus will appear at the last day and demolish this person. And, and then verse 4 tells of this man's activities. Most of this description here is taken from Daniel 11 verse 36. Let me read it to you. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper until the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. So, okay, so here's here's the difficulty here. Most... Bible scholars, including conservative evangelicals, I mean, this, this is a, a general accepted point, agree that, that this prediction was in some ways at least fulfilled by an, uh, a ruler, Antiochus IV, who reigned from 175 to 164 BC when he built an altar to Zeus in the Jerusalem temple and sacrificed a pig on it. Pig, pigs being unclean under the Mosaic law. But as with so many passages that were fulfilled in one way by a a first horizon 
event, Paul saw this passage also had a future escalated fulfillment. So what can we make then of this man of lawlessness's activities? The the first thing to determine, although it's not first in order in this verse, is what is the temple of God as the lawless one will take his seat in this temple? Because this unlocks a good bit. So some people, I think every phrase in this passage is debated. So, So some think that this, what he's talking about, refers to the Roman emperor, Gaius Caesar or Caligula, who planned to build an image of himself in the Jerusalem temple in 40 AD. In, in this scheme, in this understanding, the, the temple of God was the literal historical temple in Jerusalem that was destroyed in 70 AD. But the thing about this historicist reading is that it overlooks the fact that Jesus did not appear bodily and kill Caligula, which is a fairly significant omission because that's maybe the culmination of the passage. Others think that this temple of God is a future rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, which someone will enter and explicitly make these claims. So, so that is the view of that dispensationalist group that we've mentioned several times. They, they also think that all these events have to happen after, I'm saying before, they think these things happen after the things described in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, which they say is a secret appearing of Jesus and a secret rapturing of, of Christians. And in order to fit their view that these things have to be fulfilled in their very specific understanding of what literal means, they argue that there has to be a rebuilding of the temple in Israel so that sacrifices can start there again, be put to an end again, and the lawless one can claim to be God in that temple. But, I mean, that, I think that assumes far too many things. It's a bit, I'm a simple guy at the end of the day, and it's a bit complicated. And I think it ignores the way that the New Testament understands how the church fulfills Old Testament promises. So then, what do we do with it? We should understand, I think, I'm going to make the case, that the temple of God, we, we should understand the phrase, the temple of God, according to other uses of this phrase in Paul's letters. I don't think that's a radical thing to say. Uh, so if we think about 1 Corinthians 3, I'm not going to read these. I'm just going to give you the references. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, 1 Corinthians 6, 18 and 19, 2 Corinthians 6, 16, and Ephesians 2, 21, Paul used this phrase to refer to the church. And we might also add to that 1 Peter 2, 4 to 7, and provocatively, Revelation 3, 12, 13, 6, and 21, 22, also talk about the church as the temple. So, so the New Testament, particularly for our cause here, Paul, indicates that this temple of God is the church. 
which helps us now to understand more specifically who this lawless one is. You may not think that's the case yet, but I hope it will become clear. So the man of lawlessness is someone from the church, which is terrifying in some ways, who heads up a major apostasy from the truth of Scripture, who elevates himself to the level of worship and veneration and proclaims in some way that he is God. Most Christians have drawn a connection between this passage and that title, Antichrist. And, and that's fair enough at, at this point, because the Greek word anti doesn't mean against in the same, opposition in the same way that we think, but it means instead of, or to be a replacement of. So, so the Antichrist doesn't have to oppose Christ, explicitly, as it seems he comes from the church, the community of Christ, but he must substitute himself for Christ. He he operates as, or claims to be, the vicarious stand-in for the Lord Jesus. Perhaps even trying to speak for Jesus, pretending he has the same level of infallible authority and proclaiming that he is in some way divine and worthy of worship. Now, although this man of lawlessness is not yet revealed, you've not seen his unveiling, that doesn't mean he can't already be active. Since verse 7 tells us the force that drives him was at work even in the first century. And that means this man does not have to be one specific individual, but a repeatable figure occupying a role that parades these godless claims that elevate his words above the truths of Holy Scripture. And so we need to ask our fifth question What restrains in verses 6 and 7? What restrains in verses 6 and 7? So let's read these verses. And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it, will do so until he is out of the way. Okay, I mean, here's the, this is, this is this passage's most puzzling question. Mainly because, for multiple reasons, but mainly because there, there's an instant shift here between an impersonal force, so, so the what is restraining, do you see that? What is restraining is, it's not a person, but it seems to be a force. And it changes to a personal figure. He who now restrains. Okay, and so again, there are several ways people have thought about this. Some view the restraining force as the gospel and the restrainer as Paul. But that would be a really cryptic way for Paul to refer to himself here. And further... 
Christ did not appear to kill the lawless one once Paul was out of the way. Others then see this restraining force as the Roman Empire and the restrainer as the emperor. But it really seems impossible to think that these Thessalonians would would read this to mean that the Roman Empire that was afflicting them, even as Paul wrote this, was something that was holding back wickedness. It just doesn't fit. The emperors, in fact, were always cast as the wicked ones, like Daniel 11. And I think the problem... Uh, that has caused so much confusion is that too many interpretations assume that this restraining force and the restrainer oppose the man of lawlessness. But verse 7 shows us that we know what is restraining the lawless, restraining the lawless one for or because the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So, I think we need to tweak the English here. Uh, this isn't a, a restraining force as if it's holding back, working against it, but a binding or a possessing force that governs the man of law. So something control, controlling him. It, it doesn't hold back but holds sway over the lawless one. It, it should then become clear that this binding force is on the same side as the lawless one because the mystery of lawlessness was already at work in Paul's day. I think, I hope that that makes some clarity of that. So the possessing, it says restraining, but but the possessing force in verse 6, therefore, is verse 7's mystery of lawlessness. That, that God-opposed spirit of this age under the influence of Satan. So, so we can rephrase or paraphrase, rework verse 7. Let me, let me read this to you as I've construed it. Um, I always hesitate to do this, but I, I think this time I'm, I am trying to bring some clarity of phrase here. So, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but only until the one who is possessed or bound, namely the man of lawlessness himself, is removed from our midst. Let me read, let me read that one more time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but only until the one who is possessed or bound, the man of lawlessness, is removed from our midst. So, it is not that someone else needs to be removed for the man of lawlessness to appear, but the man of lawlessness himself must be removed from the church where he claimed a divine throne And at that point, when he is removed from the church, his true identity will be revealed. And when this happens, Jesus Christ returns to destroy him. Now, question six. 
final question, and the one that is probably pressing on everyone right at this moment, how do we make use of this? Because there's obviously a massive amount of dense material. An application may not be immediately obvious. Let me raise two points. First, for those who aren't Christians, this passage tells you that your situation is actually very dire. If you do not believe in Christ, this passage tells us, the Bible says, it's not because you are enlightened. In fact, the very opposite. If we read verses 9 to 12, they say, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So this says all the things that persuade unbelievers in the world or in unbiblical church sects are works of Satan. And the fact that you believe them is itself God's judgment upon you for refusing to love the truth. And because you love lies more than the truth, God himself punishes you by sending delusions upon you. But if this is prodding your heart in any way, even if it's out of fear, usually I think it's best to present the glories and the love as a persuasive way to come to Christ. But even if this is terrifying, then you should flee to Christ to save you. Second way we can make use of this for Christians. This passage is ultimately not, despite what the bulk of the verses talk about, I think that the focus of this passage is not on the Antichrist, but about the magnificence of our Lord's last day victory and the hope we have that awaits us then. We, we saw in verse 2 that Paul wanted us to, to not to be shaken in mind or be alarmed. And this reminds us that we have a future hope which helps us. It's the stabilizing force that helps us not to be alarmed. This passage, despite the way that it has often been used, gives stability and comfort in the Christian life. That even if things get worse than they ever have been, Jesus Christ is returning in victory. In other words, this should be the same exact comfort for us as it was in 50 AD for the Thessalonians. Our Lord is coming for us. And at that time, He will destroy all of His enemies and build a kingdom where we can live with Him forever. 
He cured that victory by his cross, whereby even the last enemy, death itself. He delays to come now only so that more might be saved. So let us rejoice that no matter how full our enemies are, Christ Jesus will throw them down without hesitation, simply by the power of His Word. And so we wait now with the guarantee of completed salvation at the return of our Savior. Let's pray. Father God, You have given all of Your Word for the benefit of Your people. Some of it possibly to keep us humble and to remind us that we are not you and we do not have full insight into the trenches of history to keep us humble as we think only you can unravel the mysteries of some of your texts but we are thankful that you have spoken and that even when these texts bring us to the very brink of our understanding When we get there, it should cause us to marvel. What a God we have. We cannot wrap our minds around you. You are bigger than we are. You are bigger than history, the universe itself. And that God has stepped into history. The person of the Son came to our world in our nature defeated death on the cross, earned heaven for us by His perfect life. And it is He for whom we wait. And we wait with anticipation. If we face affliction of any sort, let us find hope as the Thessalonians would have it. Let us find hope in the fact that our Savior will come for us That there is nothing beyond the scope of His power. That He can do all things. He can defeat all enemies. And He is coming for us. Use that to fill us with hope. Help us to treasure Your Word, even the difficult portions. And we pray that You would be with us as we go into the world this week. And we pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.